thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access patron membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison or The Power of Flashback was one episode which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2 sleepers and that was then this is now with the all access patron membership you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the chills at will podcast logo and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations literary event calendar and the chills at will podcast news you will get a shout out on a future episode too with the vip patron tier which is ten dollars a month you'll get access to all episodes a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020, and it has been an absolute pleasure. 99.999% fun. I've gone to interview people like Disha Filia, what? Matt Bell. Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman? Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Cochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks. 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Allegra Hyde, with Justin Tinsley, Jose Antonio Vargas, Yasmin Ramirez, Kai Harris, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 162 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Aaron Keene. Aaron Keene was born in New Jersey and raised in Kentucky and feels both states are misunderstood. Runaway, Notes on the Myths That Made Me, her debut full-length nonfiction book, is a memoir and essays about her parents' pop culture gender. Parents slash pop culture slash gender. She's also the author of three collections of poetry, Demolition of the Promised Land, from 2014 Typecast Publishing, but out of print, Death Defying Acts from Word Farm 2010, and The Gravity Soundtrack from Word Farm 2007. She's editor-in-chief at Salon, and she writes mostly about culture and drinks, including the cocktails and mindfulness column, The Oracle Pour, in which she dresses her writing about life up in drink recipe clothes. She's a public radio alum and daily newspaper trained, and she cut her teeth in the beautiful wild world of the Alt-Weekly. Aaron is a member of the graduate faculty of Spalding University's Senna Nasland Karen Mann School of Writing, where she teaches creative nonfiction, poetry, and professional writing. Thanks so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure to to talk to you, and uh, I'm I'm ready to just get into it. I have so much, so many questions. Um, Let's do it. And, and so many compliments. I would love to know about about growing up. You know, a lot of the book uh, of Runaway is about, um, well. I mean, there's a lot in the book about how your mom mothered you because of because of her life experiences. Um, but you know, I'd love to know about specifically about your reading and and language and, and words. I mean, were you like the the kid who was at the library all the time? Were you a huge reader? I know that you know a lot of the book too is about about myths and your dad is a storyteller. So I just wonder about kind of a broad thing, but just about storytelling and words and language and how those shaped you as a kid. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, I couldn't remember, I can't remember a time before I could read. So mm. I know I was a very early reader. Um, but my, my parents were both big readers. Um, we always had, always, always had books and, um, and my mom read to us when we were little and she loved to, um, to read us poetry as well as oh, stories. Nice. So mm. yeah, like she, so, you know, some of that was, um, you know, T.S. Eliot and you would think that, so yes, some of the, um, old possums book of practical cats, but also the hollow men, which is a poem she loves and had memorized at one point okay. and can recite it at the drop of that. <laughs> this is a thing in my family. I'm probably the one, the, you know, the published poet who doesn't actually memorize poems um, but my grandfather the colonel who's in the book had a habit of um breaking into like gunga din he really liked kipling what? you know he's a military guy so oh, yeah. at the you know at the drop of a hat so um so we you know my, my whole family is big readers and um i was always encouraged to read whatever i wanted to there were no restrictions and you know for those of us who I'm, mean, I'm 46. So I grew up in that time before the big, like YA, you mm. know, rich children's literature kind of boom, right? Like kids, right. kids now, or even just millennials growing up had, they just had access to a very different, I think, uh, book landscape mm. than we, than we did. Um, so, you know, once you kind of graduated from like kid, kid kind of chapter books, you know, you could read things like, and which I did, the Babysitter's Club and, you know, oh, yeah. Nancy Drew devoured those. But I also, I just wanted to read, read, read. And there, uh, so I went to adult books pretty much immediately, yeah, yeah. <laughs> reading a lot of things that went above my head, I'm sure, um, at the time. But, you know, that was part of my mother's parenting philosophy. She was very strict um, about a lot of things, but um, music and books, we could listen to whatever we wanted. I don't think that my mother predicted the rise of gangster rap in the nineties, but like, <laughs> to her credit, she let us go with as well. You know, um, just, she really held fast to those values of like not censoring music mm. and not censoring books. Um, you know, she was a little more circumspect about things like movies and TV and violence, you know, sure, sure. Um, on screen, but, uh, but being given permission, not just permission to read whatever I wanted but also seeing that like a lot of what I wanted to read was on my mom's bookshelf, you know, like mm -hmm. being in a house full of books really um, that I think that that, you know, instilled in me at an early age that this was a, a great way to entertain yourself, yes. um, especially in the days before the internet. <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you so much for that. Um, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. I'm, I've been reading this to my kids recently. I wonder if you can identify these, perhaps the most famous feet of any poet wait what is happening here can you, sorry can you, can you identify those feet can you identify that man no i can't see it through that very well through this okay not but... very good not very good so i'm, I'm yeah. if you're listening at home i'm sorry. holding up i'm holding up the, the the back cover with shell silverstein where the sidewalk ends oh you know i remember that my sister had those but we used to i used to read those to my little sister she's like seven years younger than me and um she i didn't really yeah shell silverstein just didn't make it into the house i think when i was little and for no reason I'm sure just you know yeah. it just kind of just kind of happened like that I remember a lot of books that I read as a kid also had like dead parents um oh. or absent parents and you know feeling like weirdly seen by these books like the secret uh. garden and the you know little princess where um you know the father is often gone and she thinks she's orphaned and um you know Heidi all of those sort of classic oh, yeah 
children's literature. And I learned later that like a really, that it's just like a really handy technique to give kids more freedom than they might have if they had, you know, both parents present in the house, kind of keeping an eye on them. You could write more interesting adventures for a kid who wasn't really being looked after very well. But I remember thinking like, oh, is this more like, I don't know. I, I didn't really know. I don't think I knew anybody else who had, who's, who had had that a parent died an early age, like friends, you know, most of my parents who had step friends who had step parents had divorced parents. And, um, so my father having died when I was five was a huge, you know, obviously it was a pretty formative event in my life. Um, and I remember just taking a lot of comfort from that, especially with like the kids who as a result were sort of unruly or, you know, um, felt like misfits, like they didn't fit in and were kind of, you know, those, so good old Mary from the secret garden. She was one of my favorites. Oh yes. Yes. Well, so yeah, I wonder as you got into, into high school, into college and beyond, you know, what were some of the, those formative texts that really, um, kind of on the, on the, on the, the, you know, both hands where one hand is like, wow, this is incredible. I can never write like this. And on the other hand, like, I want to write like this. Yeah. I mean, I, so, um, I read a lot of Stephen King in high school as you do. I think (laughs) and um, it is one of my all-time favorite novels. Um, the, the, you know, I remember just being really fascinated with the way that, um, that Stephen King also worked like music and other pop culture references, Mm -hmm. of course, mostly ones, you know, that were sort of a generation above me um, into his work. But I've, that really stuck with me like, oh, that's a thing you can do. You don't have to keep Mm -hmm. those worlds separate. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I, you know, when I went into, um, into my MFA program, I was writing, I got my MFA in poetry and I was writing a lot of poems about that incorporated pop culture, which now is very standard. But in 2002, when I went into my MFA program, there was a lot of, um, it was still like, you sort of felt like you were in a bit of a niche if you were doing that. Mm -hmm. So I remember um, in workshop, Jeannie Thompson, one of my mentors saying, oh, there's a book you need to read. And it's Mystery Train by David Wojan and his book of sonnets about, rock and roll and rock stars. And that book also kind of like really opened up um, so much for me. I thought I, I, that was a, a, an area of poetry that I had not really been exposed to yet. Um, the sort of formal, but inventive and that took, you know um, I think what, you know, what people at the time really considered like low culture and elevated it to high culture. Right. And now this is, this is like so standard that, it almost feels um, silly to be noting as a standout moment. But for me, it was, that was major. Oh, wow. So you, you talk about maybe being the poet that doesn't necessarily memorize, but you probably have some of those sonnets partly memorized, right? No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I really don't. I love, I, you know, I love hearing poems read out loud and I love um, reading a poem on the page, but I um, have to say that like, I do not have, I guess the discipline or even the desire mm. to, to memorize them and to keep that up there. Of course, also my brain is the kind of brain that's like, um, you know, can sort of intimately recall a joke from a sitcom that I saw when I was eight, <laughs> but you know, where am I supposed to be in, yeah, in the next same. Same. 48 hours? I have to have a paper calendar. <laughs> is it, is it, was it tried to say, sorry, sorry. Tell me the last name of the the poet who wrote about rock, about music. Oh, David Wojan. 
Wojan. Is it yeah. like tried to say like his 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 poetry had a musicality about it, or what was it that like? How was he able to combine music and sonnet? Was it was it like the subject matter or the form or both that were? I think both. I mean, the sonnet is the little song, you know. So um, I do think that there is a the a bit of a a form and and content meld there. But no, he wrote about um, you know he wrote about music in that book like a like a a really obsessive fan would mm, which is something yeah. that really um resonated with me a lot somebody who knew not just the music but like the mythology behind the stars mm. and considered their um their place in our culture not just the music but the figures themselves and um because i do think like when we think about celebrity celebrity and we think about well-known artists um it does become very difficult to separate, you know, the figure that we adore oh, yeah. from the, you know, the, the artistic products that they create. Hmm. So I wonder into, into 2020, I was going to say 2022, 2023, you know, who are the writers who really thrill you, who really, you know, challenge you in your own work and just are just a pleasurable read? Yeah. So um, a book that I just, that I, that I read last fall that I really loved was Ander Monson's Predator. Um, and it's, a, it's an, enti- an entire book about sort of looking at kind of scene by scene, the movie Predator. Okay. And um, I, I'm breaking down in a very serious way what's happening on screen, but at the same time using it as um, an instrument to reflect on violence in our culture, in um, masculinity, toxic masculinity, um, you know, the uh, proximity to violence in his own life. It's a very specific kind of memoir, Uh, but I thought it was brilliant. And I'm not even a Predator super fan, I wouldn't say at all. You know, action films aren't really my... um, you know, they're not, they're not my first language mm-hmm. necessarily, but the book itself is just brilliant. And it shows, I think, that way that you could really um, carefully consider the even what I think generally are regarded as the sort of more throwaway parts of our culture, like Hollywood blockbuster action mm-hmm. films, um, and consider their their impact on us, uh, those, you know, humans who are consuming them, like... And if you're a person who's reflective about, you know, what does this say about me to be drawn to this violence and say to the violence in like some video games, but also to be a person who abhors violence in my actual life. Right. Um, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing book. Um, highly, highly encourage everyone to pick that up. Um, so I've been reading a lot, of course, a lot of nonfiction lately as well. Um, Liz Prado's uh, Kids in America. Really, really fantastic essay collection um, about uh, specifically looking at her. She's also a Gen X writer um, looking at the um, her. I don't want to say, you know, colleagues, but that's not classmates. That's the word. (laughs) Her classmates from her from her high school um, growing up and like they're, you know, they're. Uh, it's a it's a great sort of like memoir and essays about growing up Gen X, but she also really looks outward, not just at her own experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, it's a it's a really rich kind of portrait of um, I you know I I still think 
you know, good old Gen X, we're a little, um, we're a little overlooked because we're a small generation, <laughs> but mm-hmm. we're, and, and maybe a little indignant to find ourselves um, adults and elder statesmen, you know, becoming elder right. statesmen at this point. But I really thoroughly enjoyed that book. Is the generation cut X cut off 1980, 81? There's some quibbles about that. Um, as most generational studies I've learned tend to be, but yeah, I would say about like, um, 1979-1980 is kind of the cutoff. There is this idea that there's this like micro generation also of Xennials, which is like the bridge between Gen X and Millennials. That's sort of like 1977 through 82 okay. birth years or so. I just know I was born in 76. My sister was born in 1983, and we do really feel like we are from yeah. different generations, which is kind of funny in yeah. the same family. So I'm I'm either the oldest of the X of the generation X being born in 1980, or I'm in that, like you said, that X millennials. Okay. I think X millennials is a really is is very handy um, because there are certain things about like the internet and digital culture that we're still being still being formed, and a lot of that right. also had to do with like you know just class and access to technology. I mean, mm-hmm. I was we didn't I didn't have a personal computer until I went to college. My grandparents. Right. You know, the colonel and grandmother gave me one for high school graduation to take to, I had grandfather's hand-me-down word processor at home that, uh, in high school, which replaced the typewriter that, what, what key was missing on the typewriter? An inconvenient one, maybe the J. So I had to handwrite in, I think it was the J, like every J on my, my little, you know, terrible short stories that I would write, Uh... um, but I did because I had a typewriter, like a real writer, <laughs> not a typewriter um, repair person, but a typewriter. Uh, remember when, remember when only like the rich, rich, rich people had cable? Yes. That was another market, right? You had to be rich to have cable. Yeah. Yeah. I remember like, I mean, I, we had like some moments where, where we had cable because also geography, mm. um, like some neighbors, the neighborhoods were just wired before others. Yeah. And then, so then there would be these long stretches where there were in our, depending on where we lived and like what my, what my parents' work situation was where there wouldn't be cable also. And yeah, then going over to a friend's house who, who had cable, who had MTV and being like, can we just leave the TV on the whole time so you can absorb <laughs> all of the, you know, the, the, the MTV videos like um, out of the corner of your eye when you were doing whatever else. Exactly. I wonder if you were talking about reading a lot of nonfiction. I wonder about being as being the the editor in chief, like, you know, you have a, an editor's hat, obviously. Are you, is it different or difficult to just read for pleasure? Um, Oh, good question. You know, because I also write about books, I think um, I don't, I read books as a, it, what it's difficult to turn off is the critic's eye. Right. That's really difficult for me. Yeah. Which is different from the editors, from an editor's eye, I think. At least it is for me. It might not be for other people. But for me, it is, I'm I'm learning to flip that switch internally and consciously say, what if you're not working all the time? <laughs> what if you can just let yourself enjoy a thing 
without having to ask yourself, well, why am I responding to this? And mm. what are the elements of craft at play? And that is, I think, a, um, a you know, a byproduct of the training and the profession, mm-hmm. and then also teaching. And, um, and it, it takes a lot to, uh, for me, at least, it takes a lot for me to sort of consciously say, I'm going to read something just for fun. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to write about it. I'm not going to, you know, mm-hmm. um, but it's hard. It is hard because I'm, I'm always kind of, that's just how I'm wired. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it's great that you're that you're a teacher, you're you know an educator as well as you you write. I mean, you you know publish your own things. I mean, obviously the book, but you know for the magazine and and all around, you know it's not it's it's like comparable to like a principal who just has no idea what it's like to be in the classroom. You know, it's like <laughs> I mean, you're the you're the editor in chief, but you know. So like one of your recent ones, I, I think it was literally the last day of 2022 published was was about George Santos, right? Yes. Yes. So um. So topical. Right. As, um, and so as an editor, I, um, I work a lot. Sometimes everyone who has published a book recently and has worked with a publicist has heard, okay, so one thing that we can do to elevate your profile for this book is to place some topical essays. Yeah. Yeah. Like Lit Hub and that kind of thing. Yeah. And so I, and I work a lot with authors and with their publicists on a lot of those sort of topical book tie-in essays. And I, um, you know, this is, maybe this is just a function of like, you know, how the cobbler's children have no shoes. I had a book out this fall and what I did not have was a timely topical Uh, tie-in essay. I had X, we ran an excerpt in Salon and Lit Hub was gracious enough to run an excerpt as well. Mm. I had a lot of, uh, I'm so grateful for the press that was, uh, you know, interviews and the lists, but I did sort of feel like, you know, I, I know how to do this. I know how valuable it is Mm. um, to sort of tie your book subject into a topic that's very timely and being discussed right now. Um, but like nothing really presented what I felt was a really natural fit until George Santos, um, you know, the about George... everything. And everything. then everyone found out. And everyone found out. Exactly. <laughs> yes. exactly. And, I, and, you know, we're sitting there at, at work, you know, at salon talking about, so this is something of course that we're going to cover. You know, we have a lot of New York area readers. Mm-hmm. Um, so on top of him being in Congress and that being, already is you know national is interest this is this real life yeah and I, I and like how why and you know I did see people kind of out just out in the national media too before the real like steady stream came just mm-hmm. the drip 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 of like is this guy even who he says he is if people asking you know but like why would you just invent these things about your life and I thought yeah, I mean, that's a question that I had also about my father. So that the the essay at that point then sort of wrote itself, which is what I think you want out of one of those topical tie-in essays right. is you consider, you know, how would this if I'm the if I'm the the expert commentator on this because of the time that I've spent writing my book and what I know as a result of writing my book, this is what I have to say on this subject. Mm. So you know, I ultimately where I came down on that is that I do, I really do think that some people, I think that, enti- and I don't know George Santos or any, him, the man by any name. Or any goes by. Right. Ali, Ali. 
but I do, but I, and I can't, and I can't ask my father why he made up so many um, of the, the details about his life that he told my mother um, who was both incredibly street smart and savvy at the point when she met him by, by necessity, but also a credulous person in love, you know, who believed him and took him at face value. Um, I, I can't ask him why he lied about the things that he did, but a, a lot of really what seemed to come together um, in the course of writing the book and learning more about him did feel like there was a sense of entitlement there that like my life was supposed to be different, um, easier or more interesting or fill in the blank there, whatever that motivation was. And so if I just lean into the person that I feel like I should be mm-hmm. or should have been, I can kind of create this reality around myself and people will, tr- and, and people will treat me with the respect that comes with that. Yes. yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously his thing is deny, 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 deny. I mean, yeah. He just, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure some of it, I'm sure so much of it is being defensive, but he just, like you said, he's, I mean, talk about the word credulous or incredible. He's incredulous that people don't believe him. I, I think that's a tactic though, you know, like now you can just, you can just double down and say no. And because we're not really operating on a shared reality at this point no, no. in our society, then do you believe him when he says everything about me is, you know, all these things are lies. People sort of feel like the truth right now is just like one more um, option in the cafeteria. (laughs) The truth is right there next to the chickpea salad on the salad bar. And you can take the truth or you can say, you know what, I'm going to leave it. I prefer this other thing instead. So true. That's a great analogy. (laughs) That's a a great analogy. Have you ever made the chickpea analogy before? No, just came right off the top of my head. If I were writing it, I wouldn't repeat the word salad, salad bar, chickpea salad. It would have been something else. Yeah. (laughs) The editor editor knew. Yeah. Yes. Um, Also, Baba Ganoush is better than hummus for those out there. But anyway, that's just my personal opinion, right? If we're talking chickpeas. I'm a Baba Ganoush fan. Right? Right? Yeah, I love Baba Ganoush. Why can't can't both be good? Why can't both be good? I get them, but this is my my go-to is the, the hummus, the Baba Ganoush, the, yes. um and the and the and the dolmas together like nice oh, little metsy yeah. platter yeah little olive heck. on the side heck yeah heck yeah is it is it fair to say then maybe some of the seeds for the book and i'm sure it's hard to just nail it down to one but the book again is called runaway notes on the myths that made me was it like you know like Meryl hemingway like around 2015 I'm just yeah seeds for the book that, you know, writing that essay when she, so Mariel Hemingway's memoir came out, it was, there was a leaked chapter, um, and I believe it was Fox News that broke it online, that um, it was, and at the time, you know, I think that the idea was like, oh, Woody Allen, the liberals, darling, like, let's show yeah. him up, you know, I mean, like, the, how how things really change over the course of several years, hmm. but um yeah, Manhattan was my favorite movie for a very long time. And because I can be an awfully slow learner, I had never really thought about the fact that there is this relationship between this man, this older man and this teenage girl at the center of it. Um, it just hadn't occurred to me that maybe I had been watching that movie all these years for clues somehow about my parents. Um, until I, until it just became so obvious that it was staring me in the face and I had this epiphany and, and wrote about it, um, and, and got a lot of really good responses to that. And that kind of set me on the path of thinking, why have I never questioned the, not the norm, not like, is this normal or not? I knew my family wasn't 
like mm. standard, right? But I guess the rightness of it or the um how it had been allowed to happen when you're when you're young, the fact of your family is just is so ingrained in your sense of what the world is and means mm. that that like, you know, I think we don't really question it immediately. It just is what it is. Um, but you know, being older and then also at the same time, my oldest niece, uh, turned 13 and I really got to see from an adult perspective up close, what a very smart, very poised, very articulate 13 year old girl is like. And let me tell you, despite all of those descriptors, they're still 13 and you can tell. And that made me question the entire narrative around my mother's, um, time as a runaway that I had always, you know, she, she had always said like, well, nobody could tell how old I was. Mm. And I thought, well, I don't know about that. I'm curious about that, if that's true. And what I discovered just through, um, through my research and through interviewing her and through talking to other people, and then looking at things like, you know, the fact that she had been arrested um, for being suspected runaway is that throughout all of that time, there were always adults who clocked her kind of immediately as somebody who was not as old as she said she was. And that tension between, I think, her concept of herself, which I feel like I also remember that from when I was a teenager, you know, if you're, if you're tall and you're sort of bold enough, then like a lot of adults, at least they used to, would kind of like wave you through, you know, because, and what I, what I, what I come, what I've come to understand is that, largely the question of did people believe that she was an adult when she was really a kid Mm -hmm. kind of rests on did they have a good reason to want to believe she was an adult or to tell themselves that she was an adult which is to say did they have a good reason to sort of let that myth become the reality for them i thought that like a little bit later in the first essay i mean do you call them chapters you call them essays both uh both i guess Yeah. (laughs) yeah But it's hard for a on, poet. <laughs> a little bit later on in the first chapter, you I mean you basically describe like a cognitive dissonance where like talking about the Manhattan, the movie, you know, specific where it was like, ah, but I'm I'm gonna miss you know, I, I intellectually, you know, push this movie away, but I'm kinda like I'm gonna miss it. And you describe me like a former churchgoer like wanting to cross back through the doors kind of thing. It's a long way of getting back to the like the cognitive dissonance, right? Where you talk about like these people knew. These people knew that she was not thirteen, right, or not fifteen when she married your father. You know, it, but like you said, it's like a it's, it's cognitive dissonance, or it's a wanting to believe it, or it's a needing to believe it, right? Yeah, because you know the the on the other side of that is my father made a terrible did a terrible thing, hmm. and you don't want to think of your father as having done such a fundamentally terrible thing. I knew he had, I knew that he was not perfect. I knew that he had made a lot of mistakes. I knew that. Um, at times he could be violent. And there were, these are, these are things that are, that are part of the story, but they weren't the whole story. But Mm -hmm. if the whole story really is, here's a guy in his late thirties who saw no problem with marrying a 15 year old instead of helping her find her way back home again. Mm -hmm. That is I mean, there was a, there, there was this moment where I thought, I wish I could unlearn this, but it is sort of like, once you see it, you can't not see it. It fundamentally changed how I saw my father. It fundamentally changed also then how I saw my grandparents who I loved very much um, and who we had a great relationship with growing up, but I didn't really 
understand the the lengths that they could have gone to and did not right. to bring my mom home after they found out that she had that she was married. Um, and that also made me see them, I think, in a bit of a different way in that all of the adults should have taken, I think, a much greater role of responsibility. Sure. Um, and instead, my mother shouldered all of that responsibility and she did it willingly. I think she had a mindset of, you know, when you make your bed, you lie in it. And also that there was amount of freedom that she had that she enjoyed also. And I think that, you know, part of the the book, even though it's a pretty heavy book, I also wanted to show those moments where she was having fun. Yeah. She was having a blast because yeah. there had to be some, it wasn't all, you know, deprivation and violence mm-hmm. and stuff. Like she had an adventure um, on the road and on the street. And uh, that to me, it, it felt important to show her having that agency too, of choosing that over, um, over safety. Mm. Yeah, I was struck by, um, you know, when, when your mom would call her mom, your grandmother, and, you know, a couple the first time she would she wouldn't talk, she would just let the, yeah. you know, let your grandma say, but just the way that your grandma would say, mm, hello. And I'm just thinking, like, what, what happened in those in between times? What happened in all that time, you know, where she wasn't there? Like, what's the, you know, I, I was expecting maybe grandma, you know, grandma to be hello, hello, you know, but again, you know, yeah. she didn't know who's, you know what I mean? She didn't know who's calling, of course. And you know, I just wonder about filling in those those gaps about what she was thinking, what she was doing in all that time. Yeah, grandmother was an incredibly poised, elegant woman. And, um, you know, these are the days before caller ID. So you never know who's calling you at home. Um, It could be, uh, you know, one of her husband's superior officers, you know, that like it could be it could have been anybody. So um, my mother did this did this thing where she, and I looked this up, I found out how they did it because she didn't remember. But um, at the time, it was incredibly easy to um, to use someone else's oh, credit yeah, card. Oh yeah, little code. That was interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah, because she said, well, I use these credit card numbers. And I would say, in interviewing my mother for this project, I have to say it was so interesting because I really committed to kind of treating her like a source. Hmm. So I, instead of just letting her tell me stories, I really, I doubled, I tripled back. You know, yeah. I asked for confirmation. I asked for more details. I really pushed on things. And I said, where did you get credit cards mm-hmm. from? You know, thinking like, that sounds like it. I was like, did you steal someone's credit card? She said, oh, no, 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 no. It was just a thing that everybody knew how to do. You know, kids would teach each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I found, I did I did some research and I found it that, yeah, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, anarchist theater troops used to have like little skits and stuff, little songs that they would do uh. about this. It would be on flyers. It was like basically like, you know, um, not just runaways, but hippies and all sorts of like counterculture types were really mm. like, this was the age of, um, of like phone cards essentially. Right. Okay. You had like that long distance phone card that was a credit card, but also, you know, you use that number to make long distance calls to charge it to your card. Mm. And they all, because, you know, they, they, they didn't realize how, this, this was like how you quote unquote, like, you know, this is how you could get one over on Ma Bell. Mm. Um, all of these numbers, like they followed a very predictable numer- numerical scheme. Uh-huh. So you could just plug this one preface number in and then like any sort of like four or five uh-huh. digit combo and you were going to and you could probably get through. Uh, so, so, so some guy in Idaho maybe got charged yes. for that call. 
Huh. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. kids do this, uh, young people did this all the time and they taught each other how to do it. She would call just to hear, I think, I think just to hear her mother's voice. Um, but she never wanted to say where she was, you know, she would call and she would, she would hang up. Yeah. And I do wonder if grandmother knew that that was my mother, or maybe she thought, well, it's a prank call or a wrong number, you know, hmm. or what have you. Um, but you know, she had, uh, she had the boys at home, um, my uncles and, um, during my mother's first time running away, this was, you know, wh- one of the reasons why is, uh, granddaddy was in Vietnam. He right. was a, an officer in the army. He volunteered to go back for a second tour, um, which was, I think maybe not a popular, um, option at home. <laughs> like, I uh-huh. don't think grandmother wanted him to do that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if he had the choice, why would he go back into an active sure. war? But it was easier to get promoted when you volunteer to do mm. hard things. And um, and his his career as an officer in the army was their ticket to the middle the middle class, the upper middle mm. class. Then too, you know, they neither of them grew up with much, and so that was still at the time where you could kind of work your way up, work your way into officer training um, from being an enlisted man. And he really took took advantage of that um, and built a life for them. So. So also she was dealing with not living on a base with that sort of built-in support, mm-hmm. um, having two, you know, adolescent and teenage boys at home that she had to look after and having a husband away at war. And um, so I think my, you know, I definitely, what I, what I picked up on growing up because I had my grandparents um, were alive until I was a, until I was a, a young adult. And actually my mm-hmm. grandfather didn't pass away until 2007. Mm-hmm. Um was that they were, you know, they, they still treated the runaway period of my mother's life as, um, as a bad thing that she did as her fault, you know, mm-hmm. that she kind of ruined some things for herself and for, and, and it was a little shameful for the family. Mm-hmm. And even though they reconciled, you know, and we were very close, like I said, but I, I do feel like my mother spent the rest of her parents' lives trying in a lot of ways to make it up to them. Mm. And I, so I kind of grew up with that understanding that like, if you have this kind of, um, uh, if you're, if you're, uh, if you have this kind of like intellect and if you have this kind of grit and work ethic and the backing of a family that wants you to succeed and do great mm-hmm. things in life, then like the worst thing that you could possibly do is mess that up by acting out. Right. That's a very reductive way to put <laughs> my family situation, but I internalized that from a very early age. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I write about this, about sort of becoming the like, the overcompensating, you know, achiever, good girl Yes. In, in a lot of ways, because I sort of thought I don't want, I don't want to be, you know, th- this sounds so terrible, but like, I don't want to turn out like mm-hmm. my mother, you know, mm-hmm. that's like 14 year old me thinking, um, I, I want to go to college and finish college, you know, on, uh, on the, on the traditional path mm-hmm. and um and nothing's going to stop me from doing that that's really what i felt and i also i think on a, a level that i didn't quite understand was that my you know my mom's investment in that for me as well i think ended up having a lot to do with like listen she was a young mom you know i was the second kid too my brother's 2 years older than me mm-hmm. she was a young mom but she was going to have good kids so right. i think that that was one way that for her to kind of show the world that like 
you know, don't underestimate me and what I can do. So, you know, my brother and I were well behaved mm-hmm. if it was gonna if it killed her, you know, mm-hmm. um, especially in public. Like we were not the we were not the tantrumy kids. We were not mm-hmm. she wasn't like the kind of pop culture young mom who was like our best friend. <laughs> it was almost the opposite, I think, because that's maybe what people expected of sure. her that she was going to be like the cool hippie bomb and be very permissive mm-hmm. and have these like wild little children running around and like no we were always dressed neatly you know hair brushed and cut and mm. um reading early and impressed that we you know this is the the like the, the straight path through was going to be the one that was going to be best so i did also sort of feel that like responsibility to her as well those expectations that were put on us they felt very real to me. And I don't think that I ever seriously considered rebelling against them. Um, you know, until I was, until I really had the luxury of doing it uh, to myself right. as an adult with my own self-supporting, you know, now I'm, I guess I can sabotage myself. as much as I want. <laughs> But yeah, that was the, that was the feeling kind of growing up and it had everything I, to do with like my grandparents' expectations for my mother. Yeah. Um, and how those were then sort of transferred uh, largely to me. Yeah. Going back to like the, I mean, the, the first chapter has some incredible lines. The first line of the book pretty much is, of all the lies I once believed about my mother and father, the biggest was the one I told myself. Right. And then as you, yeah. as you start to you know, write about kind of like the quote unquote origin story as the daughter of Woody Allen's Manhattan, you, you like to think of yourself that way. And then, um, but a great line that talks about, you know, women in general, but I guess specific to that movie is quote, a girl becomes visible to the world stories like Manhattan taught me when a man appears next to her in the frame. That's deep. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Right. And then, you know, so you're talking a lot about about art and, you know, oh, oh, Woody Allen, you know, he's he's an artist. And, you know, this is idea of the ideas of creating great art through empathy and sympathy for those who make bad choices, Um, you know, and like, okay, well, he's just making art. And then, like you talked about earlier, like that, that thinner line as the years have gone on between the artist and the and the art. Right. And you ask on page 25, what do you what do you do with art from a disgraceful and a disgraced artist? Right. It's so, a big question right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, basically what's in the art as well as what was in your real life. This idea of like that you you believed, maybe past tense, you believed that like, you know, your mother and your father's life was was quote unquote saving him. Or maybe you were saying that that was what, what she believed. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the big lie was that 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 was something that men sort of did put on girls women and then by an extension then the family the kids that he had yes we were supposed to like redeem existence for mm. him where would that, that be same... without you right exactly right yeah. that we were supposed and and this as i sort of later then kind of learned and unpacked you know um definitely there were folks on my my dad's side who if they didn't know exactly how old she was kind of knew that something was mm. not adding up there mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I said, my mother is not a master of disguise. <laughs> and when I look at now at like their wedding photos, she just does really seem so she's very tall and very beautiful and very young. Mm. Um, 
but that like there was this idea that he had you know he had been he had been um he had been so wayward right right um even though he has so much promise and this idea that like he could have this anchor in his life this stability mm-hmm. you know some somebody to people to, a family to to provide for that mm-hmm. this would be the magic ingredient that was going to make him into a more stable productive person Mm -hmm. that you know that we were going to transform him almost like a fairy tale Mm -hmm. you know into a into a a quote you know i guess what you would consider a better man Mm -hmm. um in that same way that like in the end of manhattan you know the isaac character is listing all of those things that make the pain of existence you know bearable and lands on tracy's face in that Mm -hmm. same way that you would list you know another thing that you could buy essentially Uh it's really terrible it's really terrible when i look at it now um but that she you know this idea that this this young girl who has her whole life in front of her who really should not be dating this man her father's age um has decided to put all of this on her Mm -hmm. you know what a burden uh, right right and and how unfair to her and um and and how just i guess like fundamentally this is such a it's almost a silly word to use but how immature really you know just like i want i want i want and that's what i want and to say that basically you're the thing a thing really like you're the thing that's gonna make life okay as if it's her responsibility to make his life okay right well i mean talking about like object i mean you write about in kind of the next couple chapters about how like objectivity towards your father is an impossibility which which is definitely understandable. And, you know, a lot about his, his odyssey with like the narco farm and trying to get, trying to get clean from heroin mostly. Right. Yeah. And, you know, another great quote is this, the the belief that the past must be prequel was a hard one to shake. You, I don't remember exactly how, but you'd written kind of about survivor's guilt. Yeah. Um, how, How so? Well, I mean, I think it goes back to that, that question that that sort of fundamental understanding of if if and of course it's the big if which i've now come mm-hmm. to understand is a, a faulty assumption but if we were supposed to be the thing in his life that was going to um that was going to save his life mm-hmm. and we didn't uh like what you know, this growing up with this feeling, um, you know, he, he, so, you know, for, for listeners, um, spoiler, Mm -hmm. what happened is that, uh, my mother left him and she moved in with her parents. And at this point, uh, grandmother and the Colonel had left the DC area. He worked for the Pentagon, um, at the end of his military career and retired, they retired to Arizona. And so she moved us, all the way across the country, away from Jersey um, to Arizona. And um, and while we were there, they, they never divorced. Um, this was, a, you know, it took about, this was really in the span of about a year. Mm. Um, he, his health took a turn for the worse. Um, he never stopped drinking, even though he did mm-hmm. successfully kick heroin with, um, with the help of the methadone program in New York right. City. Um but, you know, his his health took a, a deep turn for the worse. And I don't know what all he was, you know, if it was alcohol abuse during that last year specifically, or if there were other things, I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but he ended up in the hospital uh, dying and she went back east to um, as that was happening. And she and he died while she was there. 
Um, so, you know, the idea that like the, your family, your children, your wife, it could be enough to, um, to take somebody who has this problem, who has this addiction and who also at the same time has a lot of other anger issues and entitlement issues that, um, that made him, you know, drive his family away too, um, that we were supposed to be enough though, to save him and that we weren't. And that was, I think a hard thing for me to unlearn and to see a a little with a little more distance and really diving deep into the material of my family, that that's, that's an improper burden to put on other people. Um, that's for sure. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what an incredible burden to put on anyone, but to put on a five-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 13-year-old as you grew up, wow. Yeah, Yeah. and I mean, some of that was just something I think that I absorbed, you know, in the atmosphere and put on myself. Mm. So, you know, it's quite possibly there was some of that that just, that I just sort of melodramatically um, intuited, you know, but you have to think like when you're, when you are, when you do sort of feel abandoned by a parent as a child, I think most children ask themselves at some point mm. whether you know um whether intentionally or, or just d- deep deeply rooted question of did i did i cause this somehow is this somehow my fault mm. the, the next couple of chapters are are more generally about like the the epidemic of runaways i mean unfortunately yeah. i don't know that that stopped um you know in the early 70s around the time that your mom did so from from kansas originally um, incredibly interesting and, and gruesome and all the above about like the Sandy at the Smithsonian. Yeah. Um, so a lot, so, you know, one thing that I was struggling to understand was what was the wider context that my mother ran mm-hmm. away in, right? How is she, one of, I had some big questions that were guiding the writing of this book. And one of my big questions was how'd she stay gone for so long? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, to, you know, how do I understand that as somebody who came of age during like, you know, if you were a missing kid, you were on the back of milk cartons from the supermarket. And then later there were entire TV shows dedicated to, um, you know, to trying to to reunite families and to find missing kids. Mm-hmm. It was really treated differently. Um, so I had to do a lot of research about that. And uh, the Runaway Youth Act of 1974 was a big game changer in um, how how the government and um, really thought about and conceptualized uh, runaways. And, you know, we don't, I think we all know this, like federal legislation doesn't just come out of thin air. It's often, it's a long and laborious process and Mm -hmm. it's almost always in response to a problem of some sort, right? (laughs) Like, so this had been a problem for many years um, and there had been congressional hearings and, and, you know, subcommittee interviews and such, a lot of material to sink through and several Several people wrote books about it around the time. And so um, Christine Chapman wrote this great book called America's Runaways, you know, and she's, she, um, she found out about this. She wrote about this in this book that came out in like 1976. Um, and one of the stories in it that really fascinated me was this, the idea that there was a runaway girl skeleton that the Smithsonian's anthropology department had in their possession. Cause I think about museums having, you know, my idea of like what sort of skeletons might a museum have are like more sort of archaeological, of right? Course, you of know, course. yeah, old stuff, right? Fossils, um, mastodons, or you know, exactly, yeah. And so I, you know, I became a little um, lightly obsessed for a while with like seeing if I could 
you know, was this still there Mm -hmm. (laughs) this many years ago? So that was, it was an interesting process trying to get some straight answers from some folks at the Smithsonian this many years later. Right. Right, Like, um, and they really tried, um, they were very polite and it really just kind of turned at some point, I think maybe that was like, maybe we shouldn't how, you know, um, I, I'm assuming attitudes about these sorts of things change over time. You know, at so. the time, the Smithsonian was very like, wow, you know, we don't usually have mm-hmm. this kind of intact, young, relatively recent, quote unquote, I'm just going to, you mm-hmm. can't see my finger quotes, but specimen, you know, mm-hmm. and I think now there's this awareness also that like, this is somebody's family member, this is somebody's child, this is a cold case still, mm-hmm. you know, that maybe it shouldn't just be part of this collection. Um, right. So it's it's somewhere, but I ended up talking, you know, emailing with this medical legal death investigator about this, who who's hooked me up with the um, the number for the, the missing person's database that I could go in and right. kind of take a look at. And that really, um, you know, it made, it did make her feel real in a way that um that I guess I was looking for also mm-hmm. and you know my my mother when she read the part about Sandy in the book got really reflective and she's really sad about it too she's uh, like you know this she was out there on the east coast the same time my mother was she's mm-hmm. like my mom is like was this somebody that I you know spent a spent an afternoon with at some point or because kids would just come and go very fluidly, you know, in these scenes, she's like, she at one point asked herself, like, is this somebody who, that I failed that I could have saved, which Mm -hmm. is again, a huge burden for Mm -hmm. another, you know, a 13 year old to put on herself about a fellow teenager just out there. Hmm. Um, Yeah. But really I looked at, I looked at Sandy as like, that's the, that that's the could have been also. So she kind of, she does kind of haunt the story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's such a it's such a microcosm, you know, of the greater issues, you know, about how easy it is to slip away like your mom did, you know, how Sandy did this idea that, you know, the the guy that she'd been with that Sandy had been with, you know, he he quote unquote seemed nice. Right. So there weren't a lot of people who pried when they should have or asked the questions. And, you know, a big question throughout the book is, you know, what is the difference between a missing kid and a runaway? Yeah. And, you know, there's. Not that there is one right answer. You write things that like, you know, a runaway is quote unquote, not a good girl, according to, you know, tropes and such. And, you know, she has agency um, and, you know, the idea of how your mom fits into that. Um, there's a really interesting story about, you know, your your step, your who became your stepdad, right? Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, not doing nothing wrong. Seems like a really good guy. You know, he was at the border, the U.S.-Mexico border, and you wrote quote, another way a girl disappears is the time she first understands that her truth matters less than a man's comfort. Right. Because you'd you'd spoken up and said, you know, he's not my father, which was true at the time. Right. And he just he was just trying to make it easy. And he wasn't trying to do anything shady. But but yeah, just that idea of like, oh, my, that is that is such a true statement. The time that, a girl, you know, the time that she first understands that her truth matters less than a man's comfort is says so much. Yeah, you learn, um, I think girls, uh, it's probably still, but definitely when I was a kid, learned from a really early age that like, to read the room to, mm-hmm. to make sure that your needs or your truth wasn't um, too at odds with what needed to happen to keep things running smoothly. Exactly. Um, 
people just didn't, you know, there was a lot of kind of like, I really didn't want to hear it. And I, and I feel connected in that way to my, my mother too, who had a deep amount of pain that she was, I think running away, you know, in some cases was maybe an attempt to be seen in absentia, even, Mm -hmm. you know, if you can't, if, if I don't feel seen right here in front of everybody's face, then me, you know, maybe this is one way of making my, my, my needs known is to Mm -hmm. remove myself. Um, And there, they were largely emotional needs, which I think that is something that, um, you know, we're not always prepared to, to really talk about the, the seriousness and the severity of adolescent girls need emotional needs um mm. that it's not necessarily you know she, she again one of the big driving questions in this book not just how did she stay gone for so long but why did she leave in the first place right. and i never really i you know i cannot answer that definitively there's my mother's answer that she would give but it's been you know sort of rehearsed and honed over time I think as somebody who's also been a 13 year old girl, part of it was like, she made an impulsive decision that she then realized I decided, I guess I better stick with this. Mm. seems better than going home and getting in trouble. Mm. (laughs) And then the sort of gradually, the deeper you're into something, the harder it is to extract yourself from it. Sometimes, you know, teenagers make impulsive decisions that they then, that then have, you know, lifelong repercussions. Um, But also that like, just because she didn't come from the kind of um, home life that I think would have been, uh, you know, coded or presumed to be unstable, you know, like, oh, that, like, she was not a, I think what people would assume would be an at risk. Yes, right. You know, Um, but that like, just because there are not external at risk factors doesn't mean that like somebody who has, you know, that the, the stability that everybody sort of assumes isn't, is the baseline and and enough for a family doesn't mean that like there aren't emotional at risk factors that might have no external Mm -hmm. reasons other than, you know, um, happiness, feeling safe in the world, um, things that are hard to put a real, that are hard to put external factors around. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I mean, there's pro- probably even your mother, right. Couldn't, couldn't nail it down to one. If you were to get away from the rehearsal and the hone, it honed answers. You, she couldn't give you one specific, you know, one exact answer. And we don't get that from the book, but it's like, you know, you said, you said the tone where, you know, it's, it's Grace slick Jefferson airplane time. It's, you know, hippies. She's, she's in this small town where she was, you know, where she's feels more alone when she was more used to structure from the, from the air bases and such. Um, and then, and then of course with her dad away and you make, you you write about how she took like a completely silent, completely personal vow of nonviolence that nobody knew about. Yeah. Outside of I mean, her. She, yeah. Like she well, she, you know, I don't I don't know if she was entirely quiet about it, but certainly nobody wanted to hear it. You know? <laughs> That's a big difference, that, right? Right, <laughs> right. Oh wow, you and your vow of nonviolence. Like she's 13 year old girl, you know. Yes. Um, but I do think that people underestimate 13 year old girls mm. and the fact that she held on to that for as long as she could until she was hurt so badly that she decided, well, that you know, that that really flipped a switch in her and she decided she was never going to be, um, you know, that she was going to, that like no matter what, she was going to be aware of her safety and fight for her safety yeah. going forward. Um, yeah. The- <laughs> 
this is my, you know, my mother would tell me when we were growing up, if you start to ask like, but, but like, why did you run away from home? You know, cause when you're a kid, you have those moments where like you think, oh, I'll show them, you know, when you're mad at your parents, like I'm going to run away, you know, they'll miss me when I'm gone. Mm. It's sort of like in a Christmas story when Ralphie is like, he's going to leave and become blind and come back and everyone's going to beg his forgiveness. You know, <laughs> those sort of melodramatic fantasies you have, but my mother actually did it. And so I think, you know, of course we wanted to know why, why is the thing that we just sit around and like simmer over, mm. but ultimately decide that sounds tough. <laughs> like, yes. how did she do it? She would say, um, well, I had already missed Woodstock and I didn't want to miss anything else. <laughs> and when you're a teenager, when you're like a young kid and then a teenager, like that is a sufficient, satisfactory explanation, right? Mm-hmm. I believed that line for a long time. I don't, you know, I, when I started writing this book, I just decided I was just not going to believe that anymore. <laughs> like I may, and maybe that is what she would have said at the time as well because it is sort of a 13 year old's answer, but you know, there's wanting to go to like to cool concerts and there's leaving your entire home and family behind and staying on the road for months with no money and no connections. Like they're not really comparable to each other. Um, And that's when I, you know, that was just another sort of, um, thing that I myth that I grew up with that I really began to interrogate was like, okay, but like, but why really? Mm-hmm. Well, like you write later in the book, it's kind of like the credo of like journalists. What is it? If your mother says she loves you, even then check it out. Check it out. Yeah. Right. Your mother says she loves you. Check it out. Um, <laughs> Second and third and fourth, you know, corroboration everywhere. Right. I looked for it. You know, some of the things that are in the book were very hard to substantiate because Mm -hmm. the other people who were there who might have been able to give, you know, contemporaneous descriptions um, or confirm details um, are either dead or, you know, somebody she knew by a first name only and like tracking them down would be incredibly difficult. But I did, you know, I I was able to interview at least one friend who knew her as Mm -hmm. um, in the Megan period um the alexis period is very is very traceable because we still have good family friends from the new york days that you know that still call her alexis know her as alexis but it was that megan period that first time she ran away from kansas and was gone until like and that was like summer and was gone until between Mm -hmm. christmas new year's um where things are a little uh were much hazier and harder to track down because that's also the time where she moved around a lot. She ran, when she left Kansas, she went to Aspen from Aspen hitchhiked to Boston from Boston, went to New York and then went, um, went home from there. And then they moved to, cause granddaddy came home from the war that last time that she calls my grandmother, you know, to just to hear her voice. Um, she finally says, hello, it's Christmas mm-hmm. and she misses her mom, you know, and her mother says, well, you better get home because your father's coming home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is, she's been gone for months at that point, you know, but I guess the, the main reason why I just did not buy the, I didn't want to miss any more of the counterculture stuff is that it's one mm-hmm. thing to run away from home for a few days to go to a sure. music festival. And then you come home. A lot of kids did that, you know, um, mm-hmm. a lot of kids hitchhiked and, one thing that I wanted to make clear in the book is that, you know, people will say, but it was, well, it was safer than to do that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think the story of Sandy and the stories of most of the runaway stories that I was able to tell who weren't, you know, my mom or her friends, 
um, we know about because they had tragic ends. Right. You know, the New York Times archives are full of them, really. Um, It wasn't safer. It was hitchhiking was more um, was more widely practiced. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't say that it was um, that it was safe necessarily. It was just that because more people did it, you had higher odds of not being picked up by a serial killer. But you definitely had a lot of danger that went into getting into, especially as a girl, getting into a stranger's car. Well, yeah. So, I mean, so you read about you know, your mom's, like you said, there are some really happy times and adventures and, you know, her, her playing the part, whatever the different parts were, getting jobs, getting temporary housing, getting per- more permanent housing. And, you know, and, and unfortunately, I mean, there were, like you talked about, there was, there was a one man who basically tried to buy her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, that was a pretty hair, like just hearing that yeah. scene, um, so even when, you know, she was practicing sort of all the safety rules that she would mm-hmm. try that she had been taught on the road by other kids hitchhiking, you know, hitchhike, if you're a girl hitchhike with a guy because he can help protect you, but also you make him seem less threatening to somebody yeah, yeah, picking yeah, yeah. him up. Right. So he's more likely to get girls are more likely to get picked up than guys, of course, you know, but that comes with like a safety issue on both sides of things. Sure. Well, yeah. And so, I mean, you know, and unfortunately, I mean, I mean, my, I mean, she was a sexual assault or rape victim. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I mean, even even then, you know, just in that you, you, you write about some of what you know about some of her shock or some of the immediate, you know, aftermath. And she was even telling herself maybe she'd been lucky, you know, it could, I guess, could have been worse. I mean, she, you know, she did escape. Um, and just there's, I mean, really moving parts where, you know, later in your life, you, there's a situation where, where like you, a friend, maybe you didn't know was wanted to go out and you were like, no, you thought you were being safe. And your mom was saying, no, go, go, go. And you later kind of found out that it was like more like your mom wanted you to keep the other woman, the other girl safe. My yeah. Right? It's, uh, so, yeah, this was a, 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 a an episode from, you know, high school that I kind of didn't really it, it didn't seem that earth shattering to me at the time. Mm-hmm. I think my mom and I had had a fight about something typical mother daughter. And mm-hmm. I remember being really upset. I'd been crying and I was just in a bad mood. And a friend stopped by. Um, and she had a license. I didn't, I didn't drive in high school. Um, um, but was like, Hey, um, and she had these two guys with her that I didn't, I didn't know the guys I knew, I knew the girl and she had these two guys with her that didn't go to our school and that I didn't know and didn't recognize. Um, and just didn't really seem like, I don't know, like they, they seemed different somehow, um, that, and maybe just because they were strangers, but it wasn't a terribly big area. Mm -hmm. Um, but she had said, Hey, we're going to go out to the lake. We lived near, near lake, you know, do you want to come? And I thought I was grounded again. Like my mother was very strict and I'm sure I had mouthed off or something and I believe I was grounded. And I said, well, I can't go. And then my mom was like, no, you should go. And this was unusual. Uh This was unusual to me. And I thought she was, and of course, in my like adolescent head, you know, my teenage brain, I thought, well, she's just trying to like butter me up now to show she's sorry, but I'm not going to fall for it. Like (laughs) I was in a bad mood. I didn't think the boys were cute, you know, like (laughs) et cetera, et cetera. And I was really going to just be like, I don't feel like I don't want to go. And she all but like threw my coat on me and like pushed (laughs) me out of the house basically. (laughs) And at the time I remember thinking, this is weird Yeah, because normally it'd be like, Aaron can't, no, Aaron can't come and hang out. She's grounded. So 
Um, and it was really only that hindsight thinking about uh, when my mother started telling me when I was interviewing her for the book about the rules of hitchhiking. Um, oh, oh, she's making sure that there's that like my friend is not outnumbered in this car because and I think, you know, it's in, I don't know why this wasn't something that I never really asked, asked the friend about, like, why did you come pick me up that day? You know, maybe yeah. all of this is, maybe all of this was instinct huh. and maybe all of it was overly cautious, you know, nothing weird happened on that outing. Sure. I don't remember those, the guys, the boys names even, or anything about them. Like it was all pretty forgettable day. Right. Um, I probably sulked cause I was in a bad mood, <laughs> but at least I was there. And I think that like, that was a, a moment of wisdom that my mother had, that an instinct that she thought, you know, better. Um, I think that the, the odds, you know, of everyone being safe will be better if, if this girl has a friend with her. Right. So like, I mean, accusers is, is not the right term is too strong of a term, but like you write about basically how a lot of times what the accuser, it's more about the accuser than the accused. Right. It, it's these kind of things like that story kind of says more about your mom. Yeah. Than, than it did about you. And, you know, like that reminds me of like that, just, horrible I, I hate that trope so much the trope of like the you know like the father who's like oh you know my daughter's not gonna date until she's 47 and right. you know right when the boy comes over <laughs> like yeah, i'm gonna be, you know, be there with a baseball bat and you know and i think yeah that's what i was thinking of when you wrote about that it's like that tells me so much more about the accuser i think about about the father kind of knowing you know maybe what he was like or what he is like oh know, right? exactly yes yes that like every accusation is a projection um, i think exactly. is one of the the things that people say yeah but often right like people are always trying to tell you i think we're always trying to tell each other about ourselves mm. and sometimes that does come out in the in the worries and i thought it was interesting that you know and it's maybe maybe i don't know if this was calculated on my mother's part maybe it was all just operating on instinct mm. um but, you know, she did definitely have a sense that like girls have to look out for each other, you know, don't leave it, like, don't, don't leave your friends behind, um, you know, that she was a, it was all about survival for her when she was our age. Um, yeah. 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 So, you know, as, as the book goes on, I mean, it's, it's about that survival it's about, and a lot of the book, it, a lot of the rest of the book too, is a lot about, you know, the men as, I mean, all of the book is about the men as the object of admiration or the man is the object of like you talk about with your father kind of like how he was the one to be saved right the one about your stepdad which is an innocuous story but about how you know comfort of a man you know always outweighs the suffering of, of a girl or of a woman um you know talking about the the pogues the band there's the the gilmore girls references a lot of a lot of pop culture i know um you know the star wars and the book ends with and I'm and I'm glossing over a lot of things. I want people to really enjoy those parts. There's so much going on there. That Fitcher's Birds um, song that you referenced, along with the Pogues, is is just is enough for a book on its own. Man, I, I got to check that out. That sounds like a dark and and deep and and disturbing one. Oh, Fitcher's Bird, yeah, it's like yeah. it's a one of those um, Brothers Grimm fairy tales it that is Brothers like, Grimm. okay, yeah, yeah. So each of those those fairy tales that are woven through the fairy tales of mm -hmm. New York chapter are actual fairy, just like re, you know, my sort of um, interrogation of and sort of my version talking yeah. through these versions of these fairy tales that are all about like why is it that like why is it so much you know easier for men to be remembered than than mm -hmm. girls and women who mm -hmm. gets their name on what. Yeah, you know, which which statues or which stories and um, 
Yeah. And, and even like a, a story as, you know, I love the Pokes and I love Shane McGowan, mm-hmm. um, but like, you know, seeing Kata Reardon live was a, a, a transformative experience for mm-hmm. me because it did make me really think like the tendency that we have, you know, to, which goes back to, you know, in a different sense, John Lennon and Yoko Ono as well. You know, like, like you're saying, I mean, it, it could come off as so trite, um, you know, just like, oh, hey, we need to reexamine everything, but like, we need to reexamine everything. And, you know, with those, all those examples with the Pogues, with, you know, John Lennon and Yoko Ono, you give so many concrete examples. And, you know, and again, it's not like you remove yourself from the, from the phrase, so to speak. And you're like, you know what? I never liked Woody Allen anyway. Manhattan's a horrible movie. Like you, you know, you were a fan of, of John Lennon and there's, you know, nothing necessarily to, to, to crucify him for, but it's just like, Yoko Ono was like, like we talked about before we started recording, she's, she's seen as like the butt of the jokes. And, you know, she was the one who, who came in the middle of them and the Beatles could still be together today, you know, but just this idea of reexamining is, is really what, what I'm left with so much. Yeah. I mean, so, right. Like, so even, you know, there's the, there's the malevolent male artist Mm -hmm. who's, um, whose own, you know, when we talk about, can you separate the art from the artist? In some cases, I feel like you really can't because Woody Allen's whole deal is imbued throughout his body of work. Mm. There's such a thin, not even plausible, plausible deniability line between, Mm. you know, who he appears at least now kind of having been told what we've been told about him who he is as a person versus like how that manifests itself in its work really becomes like, I don't think we're supposed like, what are we participating in here? Right. Mm. Um, But at the same time, even, you know, male artists like Shane McGowan, who again, I love Shane McGowan. I love the Pogues, but seeing Kata Reardon was a transformative experience for me. And I think I, that made me really question why, why is it so much harder for women and women artists, for their stories to be considered as important Mm. and for their work to be, for them to be considered as artists, um, geniuses in the same way that I just feel like it is, we much more freely give that uh, label to men than we do to women. And we see that with John and Yoko as well. And no matter how much, even like, you know, double fantasy, that last album of theirs, you know, they were Mm. adamant. John was adamant um, about, the like, we're not going to have John's side and Yoko's side. These songs code, are, right. yeah, these songs are in dialogue with each other, in conversation with each other. There's going to be one and then the, they're going to alternate tracks. Mm. They were, you know, they were a, a creative collaboration. And yet we still have people like, you know, like I did as a little kid going like, oh, it's too, like, I'm just going to fast forward through those tracks. Oh, no. I just want to focus on the easier, really the easier John stuff. And coming back to Double Fantasy as an adult, um, after having, you know, the John tracks be so formative for me as a little kid, um, I was like, Yoko Ono is amazing. And, you know, mm. I am certainly not the first person to realize that. Right, right. But I didn't know at the time, you know, when I was growing up as a teenager, I didn't know that, like, her songs were considered by critics to be the cool ones off that mm. album. By the time John Lennon was had been dead for that many years, he was, and this was sort of mirrored a little bit, you know, my relationship to my parents too, the dead, the dead father is allowed to sort of become kind of saint-like in his absence. Mm -hmm. The woman who stays alive, you know, doesn't really get that same sort of halo effect. Yes. 
exactly right about you. It's impossible for you to be objective. And that's what makes part of what makes the book great. You know, if you had a completely new, uh, unnuanced, if that's a word, I, if you had a completely objective north, south, polar opposite eye for it, it wouldn't be as great of a book. It's, it's real life. So it doesn't have necessarily a happy ending, but without ruining it, I love the last image. I love the last part of the book. I love the last sentence about driving. And, um, you know, it was just a really, this happened when you're, when you're, when your mom was not even 20 yet. Right. I mean, if you're talking about like her years on the road and stuff and it's like, yeah. I'm sure, you know, I know and throughout the book, she's had so many different eras, so many different phases of her life. And so it's not like that just, you know, that limits her, or that d- defines her. So long story, long story short way of saying, you know, incredible uh, work. It's uh, great to talk to you. You know, I appreciate you talking about something that's so personal. And I appreciate you sharing something that's so personal with the world. Thank you so much for writing the book. And thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation. So in depth. And I really appreciate all of the the attention that your show puts on, on craft and on literature as well. Thank you. I appreciate you. it. Thank you so much. There's no other way. And I look forward to, uh, to talking to you maybe when the, the second memoir or the next book comes out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. thanks to Erin Keene. Continue good luck to her with her writing, and I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow her career and her important work. Thanks for listening to episode 162 of the Chills of the World podcast. You can now subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills of Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills of Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My last name is spelled R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag, t-shirts, refrigerator magnets, and more. And also includes bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often-ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops, instrumental by Matt Whitehour. And both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 163 with Margot Candela, whose decade-long hiatus from book publishing ended recently with the beautiful and funny and haunting and profound book, The Neapolitan Sisters. That episode will air on January 31st. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Aaron Keene, whose work, like Runaway, Notes on the Myths That Made Me, gives you chills at will. Mm